You are listening to Crawl Space on the Crawl Space Media Network. If you like this show, you'll love Missing, which is also hosted by us. Missing started as Missing Maura Murray, and now it continues raising awareness for all missing people. And we also have an entire network of shows you'll love. Check them out at crawlspace-media.com. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I couldn't be better, Tim. If I was any better, I'd be you. <laughs> well, Lance, I'm doing great today because we're speaking to our buddy Andrew Dodge of Unforbidden Truth. And his podcast, Unforbidden Truth, is now joining the Crawl Space Media Network. And if this name sounds familiar to you, well, it should because he has been a part of the Crawl Space Media Network previously with his show, Criminal Perspective, that he and Chris Duet started several years ago. And now Andrew is back with Unforbidden Truth. And I gave him a little bit of a, a hard time about this uh, rift between himself and Chris Duet that actually is not the case. They do not have a rift. They get along very well. Criminal Perspective went in a direction of speaking with survivors and victims' families, as people who listen to the show know. And Andrew Dodge has a real talent with getting these interviews of convicted serial killers, mass murderers, etc. And... That was the direction he wanted to go in. So the two hosts kind of split off and, and doing different versions of what Criminal Perspective uh, started off as. And it's a really interesting dynamic that Andrew has with these people that he writes with, he visits, he interviews, and he just has a real knack with this sort of thing. Okay, and we're going to play a couple of clips in this interview. Listener discretion is advised. Make sure you subscribe to Unforbidden Truth. There are links in the show notes. And check out all of our fine shows at crawlspace-media.com. And also follow that Twitter account now, at Crawlspace Media. Welcome to the Crawl Space Podcast, Andrew Dodge of Unforbidden Truth. What is going on? Oh man, not a whole lot. Just trying to stay busy and and keep shit rolling. <laughs> well, no, you're you're totally um, being disingenuous there when you say not a whole lot. You have been doing quite a lot, uh, including branching off and having your own show, the uh, the the great uh, Unforbidden Truth. And you've been busy producing these episodes and coming up with some really great interviews. And I want to talk all about that. And, and I know people want to hear about these interviews, but I want to get the, uh, the proverbial elephant um, addressed, which is the intense rivalry and 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 just sheer, um, I, I don't want to go so far as to say loathing you have between Chris Duet and yourself, but um, I feel like we got to talk about this, uh, this rivalry that's happening now. <laughs> a rivalry. I'm just, I'm totally <laughs> kidding. Uh, I think uh, what, what, what's the, um, so you used to be a part of uh, 
criminal perspective and now you're doing your own thing um is there a rivalry is it is it like a um is it like a, a Yankees Red Sox thing now yeah just dish spill the tea dish. no there's there's no rivalry Chris and I are still on good terms uh I guess uh, long story short the reason I went uh you know my own way is I wanted to basically branch off and do my own thing and I wanted to uh incorporate new things with the show that um I guess we could say was creative differences, but, you know, as far as I know, Chris and I are still on good terms. You know, we, we speak every once in a while. There's no rivalry, no rivalry, no beef, anything like that of the sort that I'm, that I'm not aware of at least. I was totally kidding. He actually speaks very highly of you. He supports what you're doing wholeheartedly and wishes nothing but the best for you. And, um, it'll, uh, it'll be great to, uh, to see the two of you, if we ever get you on like a get vocal or something, that'd be fun. But, Um, it's good to hear on your end that, you know, you had a a certain direction that you wanted to go in and he had his direction and, you know, for the best of both shows, you amicably decided to, to go your own ways. Yeah. You guys are buds. That's the, the important takeaway. And can you tell us a little bit about your podcast that is now on the Crawl Space Media Podcast Network that is called Unforbidden Truth? Yeah. So Unforbidden Truth. Is, is somewhat similar to criminal perspective, except I've, I tend to focus more on the criminals um, more than, you know, uh, professionals, so on and so forth. I do have professionals on every once in a while, but um, my main, I, I guess you could say, um, thing that I've done over the years, 11 years, going on 11 years now is, uh, you know, criminals, murderers to be specific. Um, I believe I have close to 30 interviews up right now. I actually just released part one of a four-part interview Yesterday with uh, South Carolina serial killer Todd Colehep, double child murderer Charlene Dorsey, um, Michael Hughes, he's a serial killer on uh, San Quentin's death row, William Dennis, he dressed up in a werewolf mask and uh, went and uh, killed his pregnant ex-wife, slashed her stomach with, I I believe it was like a, I'm blanking on what it was, but he he basically popped. Okay. Yeah, okay, so... (laughs) Well, let let me ask you before before you go on. Where does this desire come from in you to uh, to speak with these people? The desire, I guess, I guess it goes back to ever since I was little. I was always interested in you know uh, horror to be to be um, you know starting my path out. I, I you know when I was like two three years old, I was watching Chucky and Jason, Freddy, so on and so forth. And ever since I could read a book, you know, I was interested in true crime. And actually, Chris Duet was the was the one that actually got me, um, you know, into writing serial killers. I never realized that you could write, you know, convicted criminals, murderers. And I picked up a pen one day and the first person I wrote was the first person I visited, which was uh, Philip Jablonski. And once I got a letter back from Phil, I, you know, it just, it almost came like an addiction. Like it's, you know, I, I just wanted to write and talk to as many serial killers at that point in time, you know, as possible. And you know, then I got letters from Manson, you know, people like Terry Blair and um, just Robert Yates. And it, it just it went from, you know, wanting to write them, talk about general stuff to, you know, basically digging into their mind. You know what what um, you know, what came about for you to, uh, you know, do these horrible things like how, you know, I want to know how can somebody go rape and kill somebody then right afterwards you know have a have a sandwich and go out to dinner with their family like Colehep said you know he just got done killing four people at the bike shop and his mom invited him to IHOP and he was like free dinner why not you know that's that's just mind-blowing to me that somebody can go out and kill four people then go out to dinner in a couple hours like 
you know, he just had a regular day like it was nothing. You know, it's it's impressive to me that you can put yourself in that position where you know it's going to get dark because you sort of raised yourself on horror movies and and read horror books and and you know the dark world of it but that's fiction but you still know the dark world of it and then you you also understand the reality of it when you say i can't wrap my head around how someone could do that and then want to um take their mom up on uh the offer of free dinner how that those two um i guess ways of being alive those two consciousnesses can exist in one person were you nervous going into it or was it uh did the adrenaline maybe uh stifle the nerves a little bit when you were getting those letters back and arranging to to meet with these people and speak with them at first honestly i was kind of nervous because when i when i first started this 11 years ago i was having mail um you know i I didn't have a p.o box i was writing for my mom's address so i was kind of nervous then and my mom was kind of nervous then so um about a year in, I, I got a P.O. box because I started writing to people, you know, um, like, say, like gangsters, people from the cartel, so on and so forth. And mom wasn't having that. So I uh, I had to get my own P.O. box. And I should mention uh, my dad was a cop for like 20, 25 years. At one point, he was a homicide detective. And, you know, he has stories for days. And And I guess part of that is what, you know, inspired me to want to reach out to criminals as well, because my dad, you know, spent 20, 25 years arresting and putting away, you know, rapists, um, murderers. He worked uh, child cases for a while. So that actually has a, a little bit to uh, do with uh, how I got into this as well. Very cool. And uh, do you meet these people too? Do you, do you physically go to these places and meet them or is most of this done over the phone? Most of it's done over the phone, but there are people that I have visited. For instance, I've visited, uh, let's see, Philip Jablonski, Jack Spillman, Wesley Shermantine, uh, John Rubio, David Wood. I'm supposed to visit the Hillside Strangler um, once COVID is done, Kenneth Bianchi. Trying to think. Amanda Taylor, I guess I video visited uh, a few times. Um, I'm I'm blanking on who else I've... uh, I guess David Conley. He's a, a mass murderer on trial in Texas. I think he's still on trial. He's been in jail for close to 10 years, killed six kids, two adults, and I'm trying to think of who else. I, I guess Aaron Yarba before he was convicted, the Seattle Pacific University shooter. Um, and I plan on visiting, uh, you know, a few more people once COVID is done, Richard Allen Davis and Michael Hughes and a few other guys uh, on the row in, in San Quentin, as well as Bruce Davis of the Manson family. I've been meaning to visit him for a couple of years, but yeah, so I, I plan on uh, resuming visits once, once COVID's done and um, I visited, I don't know, probably six, seven serial killers so far and growing to the to the list. Very interesting. And and your father had a career in law enforcement, but I don't believe you have a career in law enforcement. How do you arrange these meetings? And um, you have to clear it with uh, the, the wardens or how does that work when you're when you're arranging them? So believe it or not, it's as simple as, hey, call me call me at this time, you know, um, hit record on audacity and then we're good to go. I've never really run into any problems with wardens or any institutions for that matter. Um, now, if you're a part of the media, you can set up special arrangement or special arrangements. You know, you could get like a four or five hour call, or you could get, you know, a special visit set up where you can bring in a recorder or a video camera, so on or so forth. But it's as easy as just saying, Hey, call me, call me at this time and date and we'll do this. 
are these folks polite? Do they uh, do they ever yell at you? Do they ever get mad for any reason? I guess, believe it or not, a lot of them are very respectful and nice. I've only had a, a couple inmates that have gone off on me. Um, usually it's the ones that aren't really, you know, um, mentally stable. Um, I even, I know how to deal with those, those people as well. You know, I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I deal with psychopaths for a living. So, you know, I've, I, I had dealt with, uh, Jose Martinez, El Mano Negra threatening to kill me, you know, probably 12 different ways, you know, we'll shoot you, we'll hang you, whatever site, so you know, I'm anything that anybody wants to throw at me. I'm, I'm a pretty calm and laid back person and I can pretty much take what you throw at me. I guess you have to be a pretty calm and laid back person when you've um, put yourself in, in these situations. What's it like when you go to visit them, when you go to visit a, a Philip Jablonski? What's that like from like driving up to the prison to, to actually sitting down and seeing him for the first time? It's actually it's surreal. So the the scariest experience I had was Texas death row because they literally you pull up they you step out of the vehicle they search your entire vehicle they pat you down before going into the prison then they pat you again going into the prison and then once you get past security they pat you down for a third time so it could be pretty intimidating uh like for instance uh 10 years ago um i went to visit a, a spree killer here in washington with my mom because um believe it or not my, my mom went with me and, and when we went my mom was scared shitless, but I was like, I was, I don't know, 18 or 19 years old. And I was like, this is kind of crazy. This is surreal. You know, and uh, when you sit down face to face the first time, it's really awkward, you know, because it's like, okay, like say you and I met for the first time, like that's pretty normal meeting. But this guy who killed five, six, seven women, it's like, you know, nice to meet you. <laughs> you know, it's, there's, there's, there's no real normal way to go about it. And it's just like, everybody always asks me, like, you know, I'm going to visit somebody. What should I do? I'm like, just go with the flow. Don't almost like with a, with a rabid pit bull, don't show fear. <laughs> what happens if you do show fear? Well, I showed fear one time with Jack Spillman and I think he ate it up. He was, you can see in the photos I took with him, he put his arm around my arm and I was just kind of standing there like, you know, like, don't touch me. And I told, I told Jack, I made the mistake of telling him you're the only serial killer that I'm really, you know, creeped out by or whatever. And that's probably why he would go on to brag about his crimes and death. I won't really talk about because it, it involved two children. But um, when I showed fear, he, he, he basically ate it up and made me feel as uncomfortable as I possibly could. What was it that made you say that to him? Because I feel like you operate under a pretty strict code of keeping your composure so you don't open yourself up like that. What was it that he did and what was it that you responded with that, that made that happen? Well, after he touched me, it made me really uncomfortable because he tried to put his arm around me. And that was the very first thing that made me uncomfortable. And the second thing, he was talking about his crimes. Um, you know, if you're familiar with that case, it's, you know, the crime scene photos are, are out there. It's a terrible, terrible case. I won't, I won't say what he, what he told me, but he basically uh, told me that the, the reason he did what he did at his crime scene was to basically shock investigators and get a sick kick out of knowing that these guys were going there to be traumatized for the rest of their life. And every, everything that he said was just shocking, you know, from uh, claims of like bestiality to being in a relationship, a consensual relationship with like a nine or 10 year old girl, just 
everything under the sun he could say to that he he i'm assuming he knew would would get under my skin you know but um that's like a really rare 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 case uh spillman because I, I haven't had anybody else ever that i've been you know afraid of or, or intimidated by even the guys that are so much taller than me you know like i visited chester turner who's a hoover crip you know i was they were segregated it was all the gang members on one side and you know, there's these Crips and Bloods and just like this scrawny white dude <laughs> walking past all these guys. But yeah, I mean, that was that was that was Spillman. Now, I wonder if you've ever been asked this question, because we keep asking you about the creepiest thing and, the you know, the most intimidating. And um, I'm now curious, who's the nicest one? Who's the one that you went into and you were like, oh, damn, that that's a good dude. Honestly, I'd say John Rubio. And when I went there, I was expecting, okay, this is going to be some like hardcore killer. And then as soon as we got there, he brought his comic books to visitation. And the whole time he was showing me his comic books and giggling and just like, almost like a little kid, like, and he was so respectful, so nice. Um, You know, and that just really caught me off guard. This guy that killed his three kids and he, he explained to me, he thought they were possessed and and everything yeah he still believes that was the case and uh you know but he was he was the nicest inmate you know that i've ever come across and it just kind of blew my mind honestly the crimes were committed march 11th 2003 and he was arrested that same day and he's on death row um in uh texas right now you sort of mentioned earlier uh that there seemed to be a difference between talking with serial killers and other kinds of killers can you uh unpack that a little bit the serial killers that admit guilt, they're, they're all about, you know, wanting to get, get off on it, so on and so forth. And that's, you know, that's typical for serial killers, but somebody like, um, Dan Day Muniz Mascara, I don't, I don't know how you say his name, but he was, uh, Pablo Escobar's right-hand man. Um, like the more like gangsters and cartels, so on and so forth, they're more, um, believe it or not, like remorseful and they're, they're the more respectful ones. They'll never ask me for money quote unquote, stand up criminals, if you would, um, you know, and, and they, they never want to speak about their crimes. You know, what I did was terrible. One guy was telling me, uh, you know, um, we were growing up in poverty. I dropped out of school to help my family, so on and so forth. I started killing for Pablo to, you know, basically make sure my, my family wouldn't be poor, like all the other people in Columbia were so on and so forth. Uh, the serial killers are more into playing mind games, you know, and, uh, basically just trying to, trying to make you as uncomfortable as you possibly can. Now there's a lot of them that claim they're innocent, uh, even though there's, you know, DNA five eyewitnesses and every single traffic camera puts you at the crime scene, but (laughs) that's another story. So how do you balance that then when someone's obviously lying about it? Well, for instance, like I'll be interviewing this guy next week, um, this really high profile um, case, this three-year-old girl was, and he claims up and down he was, not there. He didn't do it, even though his wife, you know, saw him do it, saw him kick her in the head and so on and so forth. Um, so, so when he does that, I'll be basically bringing up the testimony of his ex-wife, the testimony of her family, you know, well, what about this? Your, your, your ex-wife says you did this and your ex-wife said you did that. Basically just counteracting everything uh, that they want to say. Now I'm not sandbagging any of these individuals by any means, but I want to you know, basically counteract, you know, I'm innocent. Okay. Well, tell me why you're innocent. Uh, you know, and it's, 
I don't just I don't just go on it as simple as I'm innocent. Okay, well, let's talk about X, Y, and Z. Uh, these were in your court papers. Can you explain this away, this away, and this away? And you know, a lot of the time they'll either stumble over their words or they've been practicing it for 20, 30, 40 years and they have it down to the T. Is there anything that would happen during the course of the interview where you realize uh, you're getting a gut sense that you shouldn't bring this up, that you shouldn't maybe challenge their uh, their their proclamation that they're innocent? I haven't had that yet. Um, there's one serial killer that I was going to interview that Piers Morgan talked to that basically is turned off from talking to everybody and anybody. And when I tried to speak to him about his saying that he's innocent, he hung up on me when I when I simply asked about clarification. Um, Lorenzo Gilliard, that's who I'm talking about. Um, I was asking him for clarification about um, certain things in his cases, and he got pretty upset and hung up on me, and he blocked me on JPay for that matter. So that's the only individual, and he didn't scream at me or anything. He just literally, this call is uh, it's like, thank you for using Global Telling. He hung up on me and haven't heard from him since. So I haven't really dealt with anybody that's you know, got too defensive or, you know, whatever, other than that one case. Okay. And uh, we have a couple of clips that you provided us. One of them is from Wild Bill. Can you tell us a little bit about this guy? Yeah. So Wild Bill is an American serial killer that was living in Panama. He was a fugitive. And and for, from, from what he says, there's a lot of American fugitives over there. Actually, he killed a family um, that were fugitives, and he claims that his, uh, a few of his other victims were fugitives. And I met, believe it or not, I met Wild Bill through Facebook. <laughs> no, prisons don't have internet access or whatever, and you're not supposed to have a phone, but uh, being that it's Panama, you can get, from the sounds of it, grenades, AK-47s, so cell phones are really nothing in a prison. But um, he killed five um, American, uh, I guess they're called expats in Panama. And uh, he he was uh, sentenced to 47 years in prison, which is astounding considering, you know, the laws here in America. You know, you kill one person, it's you know, especially with, with how he did it, he would either be sentenced to death or, uh, you know, life in prison. But Wild Bill, uh, his his case is pretty interesting being that, for one, he used a gun and two, all of his victims were um, you know, American, they weren't Panamanian, whatever. And, um, he's, he's made a lot of claims over the course of the last month. I've, I've, that I've been speaking to him about corruption in Panama. Like for instance, he said after he was arrested, they stole like $196,000 from him. Um, and he paid them that thinking that his, his wife at the time was going to be released. There, there's, there's a lot of, there's wild bill is, is interesting in, in itself because he, um, when I first spoke to him, he was like, don't call me a serial killer. You know, I, I hate that word. I'm not a piece of shit like all these other guys, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, kill five people, Bill. <laughs> you know, surely that's got to amount to something. Yeah, I'm curious about his um, he's he's sort of a political activist and he was part of or he organized what could appear to be a um, sort of like a, a, a really um, controversial, like right wing or conservative organization called the Southern National Patriots. And and then you say that he wanted you to make sure that he wasn't addressed as a serial killer. Do you see, do you think that he sees himself as more like a freedom fighter? He sees himself more, I think as like a vigilante killer. Okay. He'll call himself a, a hitman more than a serial killer. And, uh, you know, he's like, he'll say he took over their properties, you know, uh, and, um, 
the first time I spoke to him, he's like, uh, you know, I would have, I would have never killed anybody hadn't it been for my own greed. And there's, there's laws in Panama where apparently if you're living at someone's property and they're no longer, they're, they're, they're not there to fight you on claiming their property. Your pro- their property is now, uh, you know, yours. So that's what he was doing with these individuals. He basically killed them, took over their properties, you know, airplanes, boats, so on and so forth. So, um, which is almost kind of like a black widow, if you think about it, you know, that's what black widows, um, you know, do kill for financial gain, um, which, which makes his case a little more interesting, especially being that he's an American, you know, living in Panama and his victims were all American uh, for that fact. But, um, and he, he's also a preacher at the prison too. He has his own, you know, fellowship there and he's looked up to as he, he, he uh, refers to himself as Prophet Bill, Brother Bill. All right, and we're going to play that clip right now. It's a strange market here in Latin America. I'm super famous, man. I mean, like, there isn't a household here that doesn't know. If you showed a picture, who's that? That's Wild Bill. It's not like you wake up one morning when you're a kid and say, I'm going to be a contract killer when I grow up. And, and, and that's not how it works. You, it's one step after another step after another step down into hell. It's weird for me to be thought of as a serial killer. I don't think of myself in that way at all. And and like what I come to mind to me when you talk about a serial killer is a guy like Ted Bundy or, you know, people who kill for like gratification or, you know, for because they like it. Um, I, I was just a what I did was for money. You want to see a criminal? I'm going to give you the best damn criminal there is. You know, Lance, a while back, I started looking for a matching puzzle game that could give me a good challenge, something requiring more than the same basic strategy round after round. But the more I searched, the more I wondered if I'd ever find what I was looking for. And you know, we've talked about this ad nauseum off air. We really have, because you came across Best Fiends, and Best Fiends is the mobile puzzle game that always leaves your brain feeling refreshingly challenged. And you, sir, have really exceeded in your levels of conquering Best Fiends. Uh, What are you at now? I don't really know, Lance. I just know that playing Best Fiends makes me feel like my brain just got a deep tissue massage. You know, it it makes me feel like I just, uh, I took a few laps in the pool and I'm just refreshed. I'm ready to go, ready to get at the next part of my day. Well, Tim, just like taking a ride around the block on your bike or swimming a few laps, you have a lot of fun doing that. You have a lot of fun with Best Fiends. I mean, is it too much fun for you? I wouldn't say too much. It's probably just the right amount of fun. And it, But it is way more fun than other matching puzzle games. You know the ones where all you do is smash candy over and over. Best Fiends is not repetitive like that. It literally has thousands of fun puzzles to solve. I'm already on level 4,396, Lance. And these levels never get old, Tim. They're always introducing new characters or new themes. Is there anything new that popped up for you that caught your eye and you, and you thought to yourself, well, how do they do this? It's just the way I, it makes me feel, Lance. It, it makes me feel refreshed and like I've learned, I've exercised my brain, and I can dive back in and do my other daily tasks. I love best Fiends, Lance, and you can download the five-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends for free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That is friends. Drop the R. So no no R there. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. 
Hey, y'all. My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm a journalist and producer, and I'm the host of Unjust and Unsolved. And I want to tell you about my new podcast, Murder in Alliance, a real-time investigation into a case that is so bonkers, it's hard to wrap your head around. Everyone in this town seems to have some kind of secret or interest in this victim whether it be drugs, sex, or both. I'll be teaming up with Jason Baldwin from the West Memphis Three and his organization, Proclaim Justice, to reinvestigate this murder from the ground in Ohio. If he slit her throat right here, there would be more blood on that on that sofa. We track down witnesses. You guys have got to understand what's at risk for me here. And even uncover massive police corruption. There were two officers that felt like their brotherhood, their staff... That could have been involved. This is the case of David Thorne and the murder of Yvonne Lane. Find and follow Murder and Alliance wherever you get your podcasts. And we have another clip from your interview, part one of your interview with Todd Kolhep. Can you tell us about that individual? Todd's convicted of murdering seven people, and you know, he's he's more you know, infamous for the kidnapping of Kayla Brown. She was, you know, you can find it on YouTube. Um, from 2003 throughout 2016, Todd killed seven individuals. And of course, everybody knows about the infamous bike shop killings. You know, he killed four individuals after they had laughed at him, you know, about not being able to ride the bike. It's it's more deep than that. And he'll explain that on part two of our interview. But Todd is one of the more, I hate to say it, but he's quote unquote more a normal serial killer than anybody I've ever spoke to during the uh, second part of our interview. I had asked him, you know, um, can we, can we talk about the uh, murders in chronological order, starting with your first confirmed murders? And then he says, uh, would you like to talk about the first confirmed murders or would you like to talk about the first murders? And that kind of caught me off guard. And I said something like, if you're comfortable, we can talk about the first murders. Um, Cause it totally caught me off guard. And, Nothing really shocks me, you know, and I, and I was aware that he has made claims in the past about killing two uh, individuals um, and the cops never really took him serious. Or I guess or I guess he claims that they did take him serious, but they didn't listen to him and uh, they basically ended the search early. And he'll, he'll explain all that in the in the interview. He told them to, you know, maybe look here, but not here. And from the sounds of it, they weren't listening to him and they were looking at the places where. He said that the bodies wouldn't be, but then uh, maybe they might be here or yes, it's here. Then they just completely combed over the area. His intelligence level was pretty high, correct? Oh, yeah, I'd say so. Compared to a lot of serial killers, I'd say he's very intelligent. I mean, making half a million dollars a year, you got to be pretty bright to do that. <laughs> yeah, he was, I mean, he, he impressed the people around him with his intelligence. And was there any moment during your interviews with him that you thought that you might be a little bit um, out of your league. Like I, I'm only asking that because you said that you don't get shocked by a lot of things. And his comment about the victims that he hasn't been charged with uh, kind of took you aback was, do you think that was his way of, of saying to you that you should know your place? And I'm, you know, I think I'm smarter than you and you should feel like you're not in, in my world. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, it does. I, I think, I, honestly, I think it was more of uh, being cocky on his part more than anything. 
the only things that really shocked me throughout the interview is how he spoke about some of his victims. And it's no secret that Todd very not so sensitive towards his victims. Um, you know, especially in regards to Kayla Brown, he's, there's letters out there that people have posted about him, you know, just nonstop bashing her and, you know, she's the one I should have killed, so on and so forth. Um, and he'll he'll speak he'll speak a, a lot about her throughout the interview. Um, but that's that's the only thing that really shocked me. But of course, I, I knew I knew going into this how Todd felt about his victims, and but I, I know that'll shock a lot of people as well. And but that's the only thing that really the the first two murders uh, kind of caught me off guard. But everything else was kind of like okay, I I know that's how Todd is. Just kind of roll with it. Did you have a best friend growing up? I had one friend that I thought he was a close friend, and then he ended up shooting my dog with a BB gun, and then I got blamed for shooting the dog with a BB gun. I'm not the one who shot him. He did. So when I got blamed for it, um, once I got ungrounded, I went across the street and beat his ass, and then I tried to kill him. He uh, he ended up being a he, he liked to huff and and you know paint paint center and all that kind of stuff and I found some really caustic stuff in the in the garage and gave it to him with the intent of him going ahead and huffing it and pretty much hope he died from it at the end of, at the end of it I don't know what he did but I ran into him two years later and he was a walking vegetable so I guess it worked but. That's about as close as I had to a friend. I had one in Arizona that was a, a friend, and, and somebody shot him. So it wasn't me. So I wanted to be gang initiate, whatever, drove by and shot him one day, trying to. I don't know. So I was I, I wasn't involved. Well, what else is coming up on Unforbidden Truth? So I'm working on a lot right now. Um, next month will be uh, Terry Hobbs. There'll actually that'll be a two-part interview. Um, if, if you guys are familiar with the West Memphis Three case, you know Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, Jesse Miskelly. Terry Hobbs is the stepfather of Stevie Branch, um, and of course everybody knows that Terry Hobbs was almost crucified. You know, in the um, I want to say it was the third um, uh, movie, the uh, Paradise Lost movie. The new evidence came about. Um, I believe there was a, a hair of Terry's found in one of the ligatures that that's probably one of the more interesting interviews I've done recently because he's not convicted of murder. And a lot of what he says is really cringeworthy. Like for instance, I asked him about um, when he broke his ex-wife's jaw and he just kind of laughed, laughed it off and, you know, just kind of like, well, you'd have to, you'd have to ask her about that. And in the shooting of uh, her brother at the time, he just, I don't know, kind of kind of laughs about it. And um, there's an incident involving him and John Mark Byers where he claims that Byers went to his house threatening to kill him and police went to his house and he did, they had to de-escalate the situation between him and Byers. I also have an interview coming out soon with Wayne Lowe, a Massachusetts, Massachusetts uh, school shooter, uh, happened almost 30 years ago. Brian Dugan, a serial killer out of Illinois, uh, he killed three individuals, uh, that are confirmed. He claims he was uh, molested by John Wayne Gacy back in the day. I'm working on, I'm working on securing a few more um, big interviews. Um, I don't want to jinx it yet. I probably have 50 people waiting on me. And the good thing about inmates is they have nothing but time on their hands and they're very understanding, you know, when it comes to, I guess, putting them off for a while. 
And would you ever dispute the fact that your relationship with Chris Duet is like Rocky and Apollo Creed? And you guys, you guys will get into that that bout at one point. Mm, no, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Historically speaking, who who would be the one that you'd always want to? Who's the one that you'd want to go to for an interview, for a sit-down interview, living or dead, historically speaking? Who's like your dream interview? I'd say Carl Panzram or Cora Watts. It'd have to be either or, or both for that matter. You know what's great is that like I think I have to look that up. I think I have to Google that, and you're such an expert in this that those just came right to the top of your head. Like Those are the ones that you'd want. Um, and I think some people would think like, well, maybe, uh, H H Holmes or something like that, but you, you go for the, you go for the serious ones. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, H H Holmes would be a good one too, but you know, I think, I think those two guys are, are the ones that I'd, I'd be curious to talk to the most. I was like 10 or 11, I think when, when Watts died. So there was no chance of speaking to him whatsoever. Which one would you like to punch in the face the most? Jack Spillman. Without a doubt, <laughs> uh, Tim, Tim was Tim was talking about between me or him. <laughs> oh, um, I guess you guys would have to rock paper scissors that. person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.